Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, we are joined by our good friend, a fellow Star Wars fan, a fellow Lego fan, Matthew Sico, U.S. Market Executive from Microsoft. And welcome to the show, Matthew. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. All right. So sorry that we're not meeting in person and even more sad that we're not building Legos together while we talk. But regardless, for those of you who cannot see Matthew, he has offices amazingly beautifully decorated by different pieces everywhere. So just follow Matthew on social. You'll see what I'm talking about. Let's go to something that we picked up a lot whenever we exchange conversations on social media. You always say you're an English major working in capital markets. I've picked that up quite a few times. Tell us a little bit about your journey going from Penn State, which by the way, it's amazing school, to technology and how you ended up at Microsoft. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a long story, but you know, I continually come back to it over the years and I try to look at it through a different lens as I grow in my career. And I did not know what I wanted to be growing up. I had no idea. I, I largely admired Charles Schultz and I wanted to be a cartoonist briefly, but I had no idea. And so what I found was I really liked to read. And this really hit me when I read Orwell's 1984. But it wasn't until I got a job in high school working at JCPenney that I was introduced to an entirely new world of reading. This guy asked me out for lunch that one of the guys in one of the departments, I knew everybody at Penny's working at Package Pickup, which was like the pre-pre-Amazon, I think. And on the way back from lunch, he stopped into Walden Books and he picked up a copy of Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut and he handed it to me. And man, that book just blew my mind. And it was the first time that I really thought reading could be both fun and thought provoking. And high school English was nowhere near this, right? So I went to Penn State with a clear vision to study English. And my parents were not happy as many English majors' <laughs> parents are not happy. And I found myself asking, you know, what am I gonna do with this? And there were really two paths. One was law school and one was uh, being an English professor. But they were both eh, and I took my LSATs to be fair, and I didn't do so hot. So I started exploring other areas, and I'd always been interested in computers. It was the late 90s. The internet was booming. My professor started offering extra credit for developing class websites, so I took that on. And I went to the head of the computer science department, and I said, hey, I've been an English major for two and a half years. I'd really like computer science. I'm good at computer science. How about I just switch and you let me graduate in four years? And he literally laughed me out of his office. It was the only time ever that that's happened. But I found, I kept pursuing it and I found other avenues. So the summer after I graduated with my English degree, I studied Microsoft certifications. I kind of went right into IT. And what I found was that my English degree helped me be an effective communicator. A little bit better than my peers, giving me a slight edge. And from there, I followed a pretty traditional IT path, which was always underpinned with Microsoft. So I worked for an energy company in Maryland that was taken down along with Enron in the early 2000s. I moved around a little bit, ended up at a global semiconductor company that was bought by a foreign company and was summarily dismantled. And by then I was in IT management and I decided that's kind of it. I, I need something else. I, like I've, I've gotten to IT management, need to move on to something new. 
And a coworker of mine had gone over to McAfee and he told me, he said, you know, here in IT, we're kind of sitting as like cogs in a machine and our impact is big, but it's not really meaningful. I want to be at a technology company doing technology things. And so I took that to heart, left IT behind and went to a small Microsoft partner here in Pennsylvania. And over the course of three years, I really aligned to Microsoft's cultural story because I was still supporting Microsoft. I was learning more about them. And I was eventually recruited into Microsoft to be a technical seller in financial services, which I knew very little about. So um, my, the closest intersection that I had with financial services besides my own checking account was my father was an actuary and my stepfather was worked in insurance, but really I had no idea. So what I did was I started hitting the trail. I was running a lot, listened to great podcasts like this one, and I would learn as much as I possibly could about financial services. And at the time, you know, and there still is, there's a ton of podcasts about fintech. So it's a great kind of trend to latch onto if you're learning, looking to learn about financial services broadly. And so over time, I found myself kind of doing the technical sales things and being really good at it and really resonating with these financial services customers, but I couldn't figure out why it was. So I asked my manager, I said, I feel like I'm making a big impact, but I don't quite get what I'm doing. And she said to me, she's like, you're really good at taking in a bunch of information, processing it with what you know, and then repeating it back out to customers in a way that they can understand. She's like, not a lot of sellers can do that. And I said, that, that's fantastic. What is that called? And she said, I have no idea what that's called. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't until um, Alex Johnson, who's now a cornerstone, cornerstone, pointed out the book Range, which I just recently finished. And suddenly all the light bulbs went off. And I was like, this is exactly what I do. And so what I ended up doing last year was going for a role as an industry executive in capital markets where... I need to look at the broad trends across capital markets, married up to the technology and solutions and partners we can bring to bear. So I'm in a very specific place, but I bring that generalist view to it, which has helped me really be successful in kind of connecting the dots and bringing that story together. Everything you just said resonates. Um, connecting the dot Pete's definitely, but um, I laughed so hard when you were talking about how your English skills and you know, being an English major helps with communication in the tech industry because I did four years in engineering. I took zero classes in terms of learning how to write, learning how to communicate. All we did was just numbers, 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 and well, um, chemical reactors and numbers and more numbers to the point where I actually, the only thing I knew how to write was reports from experiments and that's pretty much it i had like I, I think what you said and and we'll touch on it later is how we can make education more holistic and how all of these what people like to call soft skills but i think is critical skills that you have is really important for you know how we are in the digital future i agree completely i think Th those skills that I learned and even what I found over the years is reaching outside of your industry to try to get different perspectives, which is a lot of what that uh, range book is about is critical because 
when you're so super specialized in one particular area, you tend to just, you have your blinders on and you can't see any other solution out there. So let's talk about that a little bit in terms of just the way that you've been connecting those dots. And you talk a lot about sustainability and you talk a lot about sort of the broader picture when it comes to capital markets and how it in fact, you know, it impacts so many companies and so many business models. You know, when when you think about telling that story um, and you think about, you know, the, the industry's sort of inability sometimes to connect those dots, how would you think about 2021 and what's to come? What would be the headline for this story? And, and what would be our major themes for the coming year? Yeah, this is, this is a tough one because, you know, we're coming off of a very tough year and the pressure's building. I'm feeling, you know, I largely work from home. I'm feeling that, I'm starting to feel that big pressure more and more. So when I think about COVID and where we are in the timeline, I think about Doctor Who. Every nearly every year, Doctor Who has a Christmas story that focuses on a very specific theme, which is hope. For the show, Christmas represents a time and space where you're you're halfway out of the dark, which is how they frame it. And it's it's it really resonates with me. It's very visceral for me. And I think that you can layer that halfway out of the dark story on top of COVID. I don't know when this is going to end. So if I had to pick a headline, it would be that. It would be halfway out of the dark. And I think it's it's one thing to have that hope, but it's another thing to realize that we all have our own part to play to make sure that we're all safe, that we're reversing the trends around social issues that have emerged during COVID, that we're not taking our eye off the ball around climate change because that can't wait, you know, us staying home is not really reversing the trend of the damage that we've done from climate change. So we still have to keep an eye on this if we're going to stay on track. And you mentioned the work that I've been doing with sustainability. You know, I think that I kind of gravitate towards that as a generalist because, you know, nobody's an expert in the ESG, the environmental, social, and corporate governance things. Like there are people who are thinking about it, but it's not like a degree that you can take and get really deep in it. It requires somebody who kind of understands a whole range of different things and how you can apply different learnings to those things. And I'm fascinated by the idea that capital markets could have a real impact in how large swaths of the ec economy operate. It, they can be the carrot on the stick with capital allocation, driving it towards companies that do better while doing good, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, somebody has a book coming out with that exact thing as its core theme, right? So my, my unique impact here is to try to get that story told to as many people as possible. In fact, I leverage ESG I over leverage it right now, as I'm sure you see out on social media and even internally at Microsoft, I am driving everybody crazy with it. But the reality is everybody has their part to play and never have we faced such a global crisis like climate change and never before has the opportunity to grow the pie with equity for all been so close that we could actually attain it. Um, and I find, you know, when I'm in these conversations with customers and people at Microsoft, their ears perk up and they lean forward to try to engage. And that hope, I, I feel like it's a little bit of that hope coming through. You know, I talked earlier about being like an IT cog in the machine. 
you know, there was a lot of great work that I did, but it wasn't necessarily meaningful work, right? ESG, I think, and where we are in COVID, we have a unique opportunity to add a layer of meaning to our work at every single level. You know, when I was around when socks first came out and I would have to do these horrible socks reports that largely identified financial risk that the company had, and we kind of had to make it up as we went along. And, you know, the ultimate outcome of it was just a report that kind of said, hey, you know, we're doing what we're supposed to as a company. But this this ESG really represents to me a way to layer on meaning into all that stuff. What is your carbon impact? What are you doing from a social justice perspective at every level of the organization? I, I, I think that the challenge of, of reading those SOC reports that you um, had been putting together for so many years was that it, it, it only looked at one thing. It was financial risk. It was, you know, just sort of the long-term risk to things like reputation and everything is, is important, but it was very technical. It wasn't, hey, what would happen if you serve this group over this group? Or what would happen if you actually broadened your scope of what your company's, you know, central component of meaning was? Uh, it just, it doesn't tell that story. And do you think sometimes that, you know, those storytellers and those sort of Sherpas of ideas within large organizations, especially te technologically focused ones, are, you know, sort of the glue to the outside or, or this like bridge to the outside? Because, you know, ESG and just this idea of long-term sustainability isn't just about the environment. It's about how we take care of one another and how we actually can bring hope to reality. So, you know, how, when you think about that big picture, how do you get that sort of done within a large organization? Yeah, you are, you are spot on because when I'm even talking about ESG with customers and internally at Microsoft, the default tends to be environmental sustainability. And a lot of that has to do with the Paris Climate Accords, their standard organizations. You can measure things like carbon. Um, but what I'm finding is that there is a genuine need out there for the other the other things. And if a company has truly put a priority, especially on social justice issues from the top down, there's an opportunity to take what seems on the surface to be something that's very qualitative and difficult to deal with and turn it into something that can be quantified in some way, can be measured and can actually, you can move the needle forward on it. You know, we, we put out, Microsoft puts out a, a diversity and inclusion report every year, and it's it's tough. Now, I'm not directly involved with it, but, you know, it has to do with how people self-identify. What does it mean to be a minority across a different country? What does it mean? How does that country perceive the minorities in their in their country? And then how does the company react to that? Um, it is absolutely critical for anybody who's telling this story to make sure that you're hitting beyond the environmental sustainability pieces and really looking at not only the social justice pieces but how leadership's uh doing transparency how they're building that stakeholder kind of feedback loop and making sure that they're listening to the markets if they're going to address both the risks that they have as well as opportunities that they could gain Absolutely resonates. And I remember recently there was a piece of your personal opinion that you put out, you know, with regards to how diversity and, and inclusion is happening in, in the high tech emerging 
areas, especially within AI. And and you're the first one who actually I have read who tie what is happening in AI ethics with with sustainability and ESG. And I found that perspective to be absolutely fascinating. And it goes back to our point, right? Is we need people from diverse backgrounds with different types of education, where you learn, what you learn, and all of that to come together because it's more interesting that way and because that's how we can learn more from each other. And which brings me to where we are today, 2021. It's been a year since the onset of the pandemic, actually a little bit more over a year, depends on where you are. Um, someone remarked to me recently, he said, I could not believe that in the United States, 22 million older adults do not have broadband internet connection. And my response was, a 22 million is the older adults. If you add the rest of the households, the urban poor, the children who are supposed to be in class who cannot connect to classes, those that are sitting behind a 7-Eleven or McDonald's just trying to get intermittent connectivity to get connected to the outside world, that number is even much, much larger. The digital divide problem we've been talking about for a long time has been much worse, the impact of it. What do we need to do as a society, you know, as a developed nation and as the world as a whole? How can we solve this? Is that even solvable? I, I sure hope it is. Um, you know, it's easy to sit back in my one gigabit internet that I have in my house and look at it and say, why should I subsidize access for somebody else to check Facebook all day? And I fear that a lot of people have that opinion. What I, what I really want to focus on, though, is that is not what the internet is. It, it is the way that the internet is used a lot. Um, but the internet is really around opportunity for people to gain information and tools to improve their lives and their quality of life. And I, I was thinking about this recently in the, in the context of libraries. You know, when I was growing up as a Gen Xer, there were two places I would go to do my book report. It was either our massive Encyclopedia Britannica set or it was the library, right? Like, it's about access to information. And because I had that access in my local town and the school had a library, you know, I was able to do well in school. I was able to study. It's the same thing with internet access. The internet has become our global library and we can't, we can't hold people back from it. You know, to your point, the US is a really interesting place and we're reminded of it only, I think really only every four years when a presidential election happens and we look at the map and we see the concentration of people in cities and suburbs and then the wide swaths of land where there's just, there's hardly anybody. There's thousands of people clustered together or hundreds of people clustered together. So there, there is a real last, a last line, a last line mile problem. Um, but it's not insurmountable. And, you know, Microsoft has our airband solution and other tech providers have theirs. There's consortiums of internet providers working together to try to address this issue. But really, we haven't even gotten to the point where we've effectively measured what the real problem is and what gets measured gets done, as we all know. And so when you're looking at the FCC report, 
you know, when you see that they place high speed internet at three meg up 25 meg down, which is way too slow in my opinion. I mean, I have, I have myself on video with you guys right now. Three of my kids are in school right now. My wife's streaming, you know, Netflix out there and we're all fine. Cause again, I have gig broadband, but that's not accessible or affordable to everybody. And three meg up, 25 meg down is not going to cover four people streaming video at one house. So the FCC says that there's 18 million people that don't have broadband access, but a broadband now report found that that number might be closer to 42 million. And Microsoft believes that the number is over 150 million. So we haven't even measured it because we don't know what that last mile problem looks like. We don't know what it looks like from an affordability issue. And we don't know what it looks like from even a speed issue. Like what, what are providers truly putting out there? I think, you know, the FCC's new emergency broadband benefit program um, is funding providers with $50 per household who need it. That's a great start. And I, I don't want to say that it needs to be perfect because perfection is the enemy of good and people really need help right now under COVID. It's certainly, in my opinion, a way better idea than what net neutrality was founded on, which was if we start tiering access, we can push out broadband to rural areas that, you know, that I think has proven not to be the case. Um, but it's it's definitely going to be something that I watch to see if those communities that that affordability is a problem are actually served better. And then from there, we have to start working at that last mile problem for rural areas. But again, this it's, it's affordability in urban areas, or it could be speed access in urban areas. And in rural, it could be one provider or no provider. It's it's all over the place. So I'll be watching the EBB closely to see what happens. But I think long term, like how the U.S. got libraries largely, you know, through government funding, through Andrew Carnegie's donations, I think it's going to require some sort of public and private solutions coming together in order to solve. Totally agree. You know, it's interesting. I, I I spent, I think, a little over seven years working in different libraries. I worked at uh, Stanford and UC Berkeley and at a library system in Redwood City, California growing up. And when I think about libraries and sort of the difference between that and the internet and how people kind of, you know, combine the two sometimes, the, the, the library system is paid for by all of us and the library system is accessible by all of us. Even collegiate mm -hmm. libraries are still accessible uh, to the public. And so when you think about the internet and you think about where it started, you know, collegiately and through the university and science systems um, that were powering this country and how it grew, there shouldn't be gate gatekeepers and there shouldn't be this wall of access, regardless of what you choose to pull out of that library. It should be something that is a public, you know, good for all of us. And so when we think yeah. about that, we think about funding, we think about, you know, priorities. And then we, we look and see what's happening in the market. It's kind of like that whole, you know, Wall Street is not Main Street. Where we put money is not our values necessarily, but it is when you think about the headlines and when you think about the way that all this money is sloshing around all these markets and taking these companies that in many cases are things that aren't in the end going to help people with that access or aren't going to help people with anything other than, you know, a pretty filter on a picture. And so, you know, we've witnessed just in the last year that fintech, you know, this the space that we're so wrapped up in 
has had these companies that have been skyrocketing in value. And it's not just a unicorn anymore. It's a decacorn. And it's a, you know, we're going to have to come up with new names. So where do you think, you know, that money's going and where do you see the ecosystem sort of evolving in terms of funding and innovation? Like is, is SPAC the new ICO? Is this AFT thing where, you know, paintings are going to be valued via crypto? I mean, God, there's too much of it. There's too much of it. Where do you think we're going with all this? And why is there so much damn money that nobody seems to have? <laughs> that's a that's a really good question. That's a really big question. So remember how I said my background is not in financial services? I totally cannot explain why valuations are as high as they are. It seems inconceivable to me. And it also seems inconceivable to me the the market the market growth that has happened over the past year. Now it has been volatile, but the market, you know, if there's one thing that I learned, it's that the markets do not reflect the economy, right? And I think for fintech investments, that goes for that as well. I don't see anything unless there's another big black swan event disrupting fintech investments going forward. You know, as long as there's opportunities for people to take risks and, and make some money out of it, people are going to continue to to put capital into the stock market, into GameStop, into, you know, into fintechs, all sorts of different places. Um, but what I'm hopeful is that there's really, you know, there's been some really interesting fintechs out there that have done some interesting sustainable solutions, um, both from environmental sustainability, but also social justice, um, that are they're really trying to make a difference. And I, I like that with technology, they're able to do that, right? They're, everybody is kind of on a level playing field as long as you're able to get the investment at least, if and then invested in the technology and the developers and the ideas. Um, you know, I think we've, we see big banks continuing to create VC funds that are investing in fintechs as well as other startups. I don't see that changing. Um, private equity is sitting on a ton of dry powder right now. You know, there's a lot of rumors going around that M&As are going to start opening up or that they might be funneling that money into some of their um, portfolio companies to start picking up some of these startups. So that could be a motion. Uh, the, the SPACs, as you said, they're growing in popularity. You know, could they start bringing these fintechs together in new and interesting ways? You know, they're they're kind of a big unknown right now for how they're going to operate, I think, at least. And we could see you know fintech new fintech partnerships evolve out of that but what's really different to me about this particular point in time with fintech you know it's always it's always been technology driven as per the per the name but i think never before and it keeps increasing as we go on never before has technology been so democratized that virtually anyone can use it and we have ai and its growth recently as uh, Theo pointed out earlier, but there's there are real risks there. And so I'm more concerned, I think, from the perspective of how are these fintechs leveraging technology and some of the cutting edge stuff like artificial intelligence? How are they protecting themselves against bias, making sure that they're good custodians of marginalized communities? What's the environmental impact? Um, more so than the, than the evaluations piece. So this is a good segue um, to 
to what's been happening, right? So if we think about, take a step back, think about AI. A couple of years ago, people were saying, oh, you know, it's going to replace all the jobs, robots going to take over the world, human beings will cease to exist, yada, yada, yada. And now we are at the place where, hold on a second, we are having a lot more fundamental challenges with regards to bias, with regards to who gets to say what and do what, with regards to the direction where it's going and where it's being employed. Um, last year in particular, I witnessed a lot of discussions about you know what is fair, um, where the technology is going and how it's impacting some of the underrepresented demographics. We have obviously witnessed a lot of troubling trends as of late. Um, I would like to look at hope though, going back to how you started the conversation, right? That there is hope, just like Dr. Hu's episode. Um, eventually, hopefully, we'll, we'll do it right and do it right by the people. Or is that wishful thinking? Yeah, so talk talk about an intersection with ESG, right? <laughs> so let me let me be absolutely clear. I I personally believe that AI ethics is directly material to every big tech company as well as every company that leverages it as a tool. A AI ethics is something that you have to put in front of profit and revenue because if you don't get it right and if, you know, if you, your customers don't get it right, you you are not only disenfranchising marginalized groups further, but probably you will lose that revenue as those workloads are pulled out, retooled, and perhaps never come back. And as a big tech company, that's a huge problem. And as a customer of you know leveraging this, you could lose time, you could lose market share, you could lose resources who disagree with your approach and have been in the background waving their hands frantically that there's a problem. So bias bias and ai ethics are are inextricably linked and material now i i often recent more recently have been thinking about this um from the perspective of environmental sustainability as well you know we have microsoft has a sustainability calculator that you can use to kind of figure out what your it workload is doing right and i'm wondering you know are there ways that you can sacrifice percentage points of your ai models in order to save carbon, like, do you really need 99.99%? Or if you do 95% and you lower your compute time by 10,000 hours, it's just as good. Like, I don't know that any people might be talking about that. I haven't really seen that, but it's, I feel like that conversation's coming. So I see a lot of hope at Microsoft. Um, as I talk to people inside the organization about AI ethics. So sitting in capital markets, you know, I'm uniquely positioned, as is my team, to potentially impact the allocation of billions of dollars through the use of AI as our customers get more and more comfortable with it. So part of my job as a good custodian and a good Microsoft employee is to make sure that our field understands what it means to do AI ethics. And I, th I think Microsoft has done a really great job of instilling its employee with a strong its employees with a really strong AI ethics foundation through our internal training. We have an office of responsible AI built around six pillars, which you can look up. It's, it's publicly available for training. Um, we have internal groups looking at it. One's called Aether, one's called Raise, who focus on AI ethics. And we share this work out with the world. In fact, I was, you know, our AI business school, um, I was just on a call the other day and we were talking to a customer about it. It and I didn't realize this. It has a module focused on responsible AI as part of the you know the 
the modules that it has. But what besides all this, this goodwill that we're doing out there, I think what gives me the most hope is how I've seen us, us being Microsoft, deal with challenges and missteps. You know, we're a learning organization. I talk about it all the time. I've, I'm sure you guys have heard Satya say that we're a learn it all organization. Sometimes I feel like I am quite literally trying to learn it all. <laughs> um, but when you're learning, you know, your perspective constantly shifts. You're willing to own your mistakes, you're willing to examine them, and you're willing to improve things. So I don't know what the future holds for AI ethics, but I'm optimistic that even if the big names get it wrong, there will be enough people out there who will learn and grow from the experience to help us all do better. Well, one thing that I have learned uh, about um, you over the past year or two that uh, we've interacted on Twitter and other places that um, you are very passionate about the bigger picture and about the groups that may be impacted by, by what you do and what happens in the industry. And, and that, you know, brings me into, again, going back to where we started and talking about uh, the, the thing that's behind you, the multiple things that are behind you and those uh, Legos that you and your family build together. Um, your, your office that you, you can't see, listener, uh, is completely full of Lego and Lego sets. I see an awful lot of Star Wars. I think in the corner I see something that might be... Um, related to a building that might have the Ghostbusters in it. Is that right? Okay. That excellent. is correct. That is correct. <laughs> uh, if, if you, you know, what, what, what would be your favorite, you know, of, of what you have behind you or what you've built and maybe don't have behind you? And uh, how are you ever going to find room for the next one? Oh, my gosh. So I've, <laughs> I am relegated to two rooms in the house for Lego. One is my office, which has been pre-COVID. Um, and one is um, we have a media room in the basement set up, which is, you know, has a nice projector. And th that only has Star Wars Legos in it. So you see at least two Star Wars Legos behind me. I have the X-Wing and the Millennium Falcon. There is nothing but Star Wars Legos in the basement. Um, now, what I would say, I don't think my favorite one is actually in my office. So, you know, I have three kids of various ages and we watch the Star Wars Clone Wars. We watch Star Wars Rebels. And, you know, it, it's it's a way for me to connect kind of my Gen X roots with my kids. And one of the sets that I built with them was um, from one of the Star Wars Rebels, I think it was, where it was like an at TE, which is the tank, but it was like all modified by, I think, Captain Rex. And it was all like colorful pinks and blues. And it, it was like, it took a very traditional kind of Star Wars Lego tank that was popular and just completely kind of customized it and it was just it was a really fun build it was really colorful you know we we all did it together and it was just the best it was just the best i i will say this though <laughs> for those of you that have seen the lego movie i want you to picture me at the lego movie with my family so it's me on one end the three kids in the middle and my wife on the other end and i'm going to spoil it so if you haven't seen it you can pause it here, I guess, if you don't want to be spoiled. We're getting to the end of the movie. And when the big reveal is that President Business is, is the dad, I just see my wife slightly edge forward and look down at me and look over at me and just shake her head. Just tell me you don't use uh, crazy glue. I don't. Glue. <laughs> I, don't. Right. I do not use crazy glue. <laughs> 
All right. Well, that is a perfect end to our conversation. And for those of you who are trying to figure out what on earth we are talking about, just go follow Matthew on social media. Uh, Matthew Siegel. Uh, sorry, edit that part out. Jeez, I knew I almost made it. Um, so for those of you who are curious about what we are talking about with Matthew's sets and more, go follow him on social media. You can find him at Matthew, S-E-K-O-L. So it's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-E-K-O-L. Go find him, follow him. He has amazing things that he posts every single day, not just about Lego, but just about everything else in the world. So thank you so much for chatting with us today, Matthew. And hopefully one of these days we can see you in person. And for everybody, thank you for listening in to another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you next week.